what we see a lot is neglect, the label neglect um, given to parents that are just uh, poor. poor. They're just poor and they cannot afford diapers. And if they have strikes against them, they'll get their kids taken away from them for not having diapers. And that we feel is just unconscionable. Hello, friends and damn givers. I'm Nick LaPara, and welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. This is the show you listen to when you want to hear from people who are giving a damn and making our world a much better place in so many unique and meaningful ways. Thank you for hitting play. Thank you for showing up. And most of all, thank you for joining me and us on this journey toward leaving the planet much better than we found it. Friends, one brief note before I introduce my guests this week. I have to bring this up because I asked all of you so many times to vote, 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 vote. And guess what? It worked. I'm not saying my calls to action pushed us over the edge. I'm simply saying that voting works. It really does. Gen Z showed up. Black and brown people showed up. Women showed up. Queer people showed up. There was no red wave, and I'm so grateful for that. It was more like a red ripple or a red puddle. The polls told us that Republicans would easily take the House and the Senate. Well, Democrats, as of right now, have the majority in the Senate, and the House majority has not yet been decided. We won many more Senate seats, House seats, governor's seats, Secretary of State seats than they told us we would. And I won't get into the nitty gritty details on here because I want to get to this conversation and I'm sure most of you are following along closely, but just a reminder that voting works and pollsters suck. Don't listen to the polls, get out there on the phones, canvassing, voting every single time. The battle is not over. These midterms have yet to pan out entirely and 2024 is quickly approaching. But in the midst of all the craziness, I think it's important for us to take every opportunity we can to celebrate each other and to celebrate the small and big wins alike. Okay, I had so much fun recording this conversation. My guests are brilliant and talented and have been giving a damn for decades. Jessica Seinfeld and Katherine Snyder join me this week for a conversation about Good Plus Foundation, breaking multi-generational poverty cycles, the truth behind why so many fathers aren't present in their families, how to care for the needs of the entire family, and so much more. Good Plus Foundation celebrated 21 years of service on October 28, just a few weeks ago, a monumental Congrats to Jessica, Catherine, and every single person who has been involved in this work over the past 21 years. Doing anything for 21 years is no small feat. Good Plus Foundation, formerly known as Baby Buggy, was started by Jessica Seinfeld shortly after she and her husband had their first child. Today, all these years later, Jessica serves as the founder and board chair, and Catherine Snyder serves as their CEO. Over the past 21 years, they have donated over $80 million in essential goods to anti-poverty partners and over a million families all over the country. They serve 50,000 families per month and gave away over 2 million diapers last year alone. 
What's the big deal about diapers? Well, it's a big fucking deal, as we discuss in this conversation. And one of the things I love about Good Plus Foundation is their focus on fathers. So many nonprofits like Good Plus focus on mothers and children, which is an amazing thing. It's not a bad thing at all. But Good Plus Foundation's holistic approach means that some of these multi-generational issues and cycles can be resolved and can be stopped once and for all. And they're seeing that work happen each and every day. And one more thing I want to point out about this conversation and about these two amazing humans, there's a really beautiful dynamic going on between Catherine and Jessica. I think it's worth pointing out as you, the listener, think about starting a project, a nonprofit, a company now or in the future. Jessica defers to Catherine on so much. Even though Jessica founded this organization, she defers to Catherine on so much. Catherine is clearly the CEO. Numbers, data, spreadsheets, strategy, and things like that. Catherine is so good at those things. And then Catherine brings up multiple times in our conversation and before the mics were even on, the need for Jessica to keep being the visionary because that is not something Catherine can do well or even wants to do, frankly. I rarely get to talk with two people who are part of the same project, so I thought it was worth pointing out this really beautiful dynamic. When you're making, well, virtually anything, find good people, the right people, to help make whatever it is that you're making a reality. Most things will fail if done alone. And frankly, I'm preaching to myself because I am currently building out teams and partners for all Let's Give a Damn projects, things that I have historically done on my own, and they have moved slowly because of that. Before we get into this fascinating conversation, a quick reminder, as always, that you can email me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. You can ask questions, recommend future guests, tell me how much you love or hate the show or me, anything really. I just love hearing from you. And now, without further ado, let's get right into my conversation with the incredible Katherine Snyder, the incredible Jessica Seinfeld. Let's go. Catherine and Jessica, welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I'm so thrilled. First of all, I deeply apologize for keeping you in this stuffy conference room on such a beautiful day. <laughs> Happy to be here. There's nothing like autumn in New York, though. No, this is the this is the month. It really is. It, it's usually September, but for some it reason we've stretched out to yeah. November. Yeah. Is that global warming or something, the climate crisis? Because I I remember, I grew up in New York. We come to New York all the time. September was beautiful. And now, September, the two years we've lived here, have been just hot all the way through. Yeah. It isn't until yeah. first week of October that we start getting a cooler day or two. It was 75 degrees in Central Park this weekend. Yeah, that's Early ridiculous. November, yeah. Well, we it could get into that, too. <laughs> All right, we're here to talk about whatever you want to. If we want to talk, <laughs> if we want to forget about Good Plus and talk about climate change, no, we're going to talk about Good Plus Foundation. Um, anyway, thank you so much for being here. Here's how I love to begin most of the conversations, because this is not just about, in my mind, this is not just about the foundation, the work you all have done. We will talk plenty about sure. that. I'm also interested and firstly interested in why you two, like, why are you doing it, right? The sec... I want to get the story because not everybody ends up doing this kind of work. Not everyone 
ends up feeling the way mm-hmm. that you do about the projects that you're tackling and the issues that you're tackling, right? Not everybody has to start a foundation, a nonprofit, but let's give a damn exists to help people figure out what their thing is, whatever it is, start a business, a nonprofit, uh, hold the door more often, be kinder online. Everybody's got a thing. And for you two, among other things, it is working on this amazing foundation. So before we get there, I'm going to start with you, Catherine. Okay. And can you give me a five-minute, uh, or however long you want to take, but a, a shortened version of your life? Sure. The who, what, when, where, and why of your upbringing. And if if there if there was some time in there where you had a light bulb moment, hey, I need to huh. give a damn. I should be doing more of this, that, and the other, because this is the right way to live. Like if there was that, or if that was an instant moment, or if that took a long time to get there, share some of that with us. I don't know that there was a light bulb moment, but I grew up um, in Montreal, Quebec. Both my parents were educators. They both, you know, my parents were Catholic. I grew up in a Catholic household, Catholic school, very dedicated to their community. So outside of just being educators, they felt this calling to their community. And I think I, that's how we grew up. That's, that was kind of the expectation. And I didn't, I knew I didn't want to be a teacher like they were, and they were phenomenal teachers. Um, but I had a calling. I wanted to be able to help people in my community in very different ways. So it was, it wasn't that kind of lightning bolt moment, but it was just this sort of process. In college, I worked for the Women's Center um, I was very interested in women's issues after college, went to Washington, D.C., worked for the Canadian consulate. It was interesting work. It was kind of glamorous work, but I really wanted to be able to have more of a direct impact on communities. And I think because I grew up in Canada in a social democracy, I was very concerned about the lack of social safety net here sure. in the United States. Um, so that was kind of top of mind, but just kind of kept falling into, you know, different jobs. So similar to you, worked for a couple of nonprofits. And I don't think it was until I was working at the Rockefeller Foundation doing work globally. I had two young kids at home, two-year-old and a three-year-old, 14 months apart. So it was difficult to leave my kids. And as compelling as the work was, you know, I was working in the slums of Cabrera and said, there are children in New York City who are living in similar conditions. And why am I not there with my kids? Mm. And why am I not doing work in this space? So I'd been a donor to Good Plus Foundation, then Baby Buggy. Um, I thought the model was fascinating. And I also saw tremendous potential to really expand that model. So I guess my lightning bolt moment was coming to Good Plus and really being able to sort of realize those different facets of life in one organization. Beautiful. Where did your parents teach? Like, is it elementary school, high school? And what yeah. did they teach? So my dad taught at McGill University. Both my parents are Americans. Ah, so university, and they, okay. Yeah, ended up there um, because of my dad's job. But he was a classics professor, very wonky, nerdy guy, brilliant guy. Um, but as nerdy and wonky as he was, he deeply cared about his community. So later in life, he ended up being becoming legally blind, became an ADA activist. Um, he you know, was part of the teachers union, very, very engaged in his work. And then my mom um, did some work as a counselor and then taught different grades in in elementary school. I ask that because I'm fascinated by teachers. Teachers are the best people that we have. 
and there, I couldn't there, teach. There are yeah. no better people than teachers with three kids in school. And I know that they're not in university yet, but I'm just constantly amazed at how much teachers do for us. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And families. Yeah. And families. Yeah. My children attend Harlem Village Academies up in Harlem. And I've never met more people that are more dedicated to the well-being of, I mean, they just tirelessly work too much. I'm like, yeah. go home. Stop giving. Yeah, I Stop think for so many of them, us. it's a calling. It yeah. really is. No, it has to yeah. be because you're not getting paid. You're getting paid shit. Agreed. And you show up. You're, I mean, you're there before the sun is up and you leave uh, so late and a smile on your face and you're out there greeting kids. Every morning when I take my kids to school, when I walk them to school, the same people out there, Mr. Henry's out there greeting the kids as they walk in. And everyone is all smiles, and I just don't get it. They're superhuman. If I became president, and that's a job I never want, I would try to figure out how to, as best as I can, take all the money away from athletes, not all, give them a decent salary, and give our teachers some of that money because we are entertained to death, and we are not educated enough. That's clear if you look at our politics and the kinds of things that we we espouse, and uh, we won't get into that right now. But um, yeah, so I'm very glad that you were raised by educators. So am I. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that had a, a lot to just subconsciously play into it. it. It did. It was, you know, the conversations, we were never allowed to just dismiss a topic. We actually had to have a conversation around the dinner table. Very difficult topics. Um, it was always encouraged and always invited. And so that kind of formed the way I thought about the world, constantly asking why can't we be doing things better? That was that was the way my parents worked. Amazing. Yeah. Jessica, how about you? That's how Catherine is every day. It's so funny to hear you tell that story that way because you continue that model mm. of looking at our problems um, in 360 degrees. So thank you for asking her that question yeah. Yes, and answering it so well. Um, well, I have, um, I guess... A similar background in that my parents um, were, are still, thankfully, um, you know, very liberal, former radicals in the 60s, um, went to University of Wisconsin in the 60s, which was a very, um, you know, um, they they were activists. They've been activists, I think, since they were in their teens. Mm. And um, I grew up really with this idea that, you know, if you're not helping to change the world, if you're not going out every single day and making the world a better place, what are you even doing? And so the expectation for us was always to give back. Um, And my parents didn't have a lot of money, but we gave our time to many different causes. And my mom worked for the Department of Corrections. And so she always was very in touch with the needs of families Mm. of those who are incarcerated. And I had an internship when I was in college at the probation and parole office. And I had my own load of clients at age, I was like 18 or 19, I guess. I was a sophomore in college, so I was 19. Um, Same age as my son at the moment. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And we, um, I had my own clients, like I said, and they were 
my age and they were mothers. Hmm. And that really hit me hard to see that they would steal clothing, food, diapers, and then end up in jail or end up on probation. And all they were trying to do is take care of their families. Survive. Yeah. yeah. And I had the privilege of going back to my dorm and, you know, living a college student life. But at the same time, I just couldn't ever forget what they were doing at their homes when I was, you know, in French class. So um, it really was a significant experience for me. And it wasn't until I had my own child, my first child in um, the year 2000, that it, it kind of came rushing back to me that I just felt really compelled to devote myself to the wellness, health, safety, and care of others. And that was, that was the beginning of Baby Buggy. That was, you know, I, I had no plan. Mm. I had no, you know, I, I had no idea other than, wow, it is crazy expensive to buy a stroller, a crib, uh, diapers, clothing, and all of these things that your kid grows out of so quickly while knowing there are millions of people around us in New York City who can't afford these things. So that was the beginning. One of my favorite days ever was the last day that I had to buy diapers <laughs> for my children. Yes. Even as someone that, I mean, we've never been wealthy, but we've always had enough. Even as someone who had enough, <laughs> going to Target every few days, it mm -hmm. seemed, to buy a huge pack. Because at one point we had, I think at one point we had all three, three diapers. diapers. Yeah. I mean, it literally felt like I was, you know, just forking over the majority of my paycheck at the time for things just to keep them alive, right? Just so they, you know, could stay alive. And that was so, yeah, I can't imagine being in utter poverty and having to think through those things. How do you do it? Yeah. It's one and a half hours minimum wage to be able to afford a pack of diapers. Oh, my God. So think about that. Forget rent. Forget utilities. Forget all the other stresses. So just the constant stress of thinking about how am I going to put food on the table and buy a pack of diapers is kind of the reality for our families. So before we jump into Good Plus Foundation, thank you for sharing some of your stories. There's a million questions there, but we won't do that now. We'll do that off the, off the, off the mic. I'm so interested in learning more about where you've come from. But it seems clear also, I see clues in both of your stories, right? Both have parents that clearly gave a damn uh, and that give a damn probably, you know, still today, hopefully. Um, and that shaped you subconsciously or consciously mm -hmm. to do the kinds of things that you're doing today. Congrats on 21 years. Thank you. October 28, correct? Yeah. Yes. Was 21 years. That is no small feat. Doing anything for 21 years. I know. <laughs> being in the uh, foundation, nonprofit, philanthropic, give a damn space, that's hard. That's really difficult. So congrats to you, Jessica. Thank you. And also to you because you've been here most of the time, right? You've yes. been at Good Plus 14. for 14, so not, 14 years. No, I mean, imagine our most formative years wow. and uh, we look the way we do because of Catherine. So uh, my my idea- Don't shake your head, no. Take no. it, take it, <laughs> receive it, just receive it. I. But it's- Yes. I mean, it's a joint Jessica's effort. And her vision. Imagine having a newborn 
and thinking about others. Yeah, we were- I think when I was, you know, struggling with two boys 14 months apart, all I could think about was how am I going to get sleep? Yeah. And Jessica created this incredible organization, thinking about others despite you know, the challenges of parenthood. Well, this is a, this is, I'm glad you brought that up because before you arrived and before the mics were on, we were talking about someone we won't talk about, but we were talking about the fact that this person, um, was clearly a visionary and not a CEO stick to visionary and let the CEO do the CEO stuff. And so here we've got this great dynamic, right? You're both, you're both keeping praise on each other, right? Can't do without the other. Um, that's a successful organization. I don't, I'm sure we could find one, but find me an organization that is inspiring people, that is truly helping people and reaching out that doesn't have both those dynamics. Interesting. The CEO, you have companies that 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 function with this kind of, uh, you know, the CEO that's head down into the problems, into the weeds, checking with the numbers with the CFO every day, all that stuff. But they're not really reaching out to people and people aren't like attracted to their brand or what their idea is. But when you have this dynamic where you have the original vision, right? That clearly came from your story in your upbringing, Jessica, to, and then having someone that is clearly very competent to make sense of the vision. I am a visionary. I am a terrible CEO type. The very reason that five years into Let's Give a Damn, I'm just now getting management for all of my projects, and I have just been just toiling and laboring away and kind of without even thinking about it and ignoring good advice that I didn't know I was ignoring, but the, the advice was get some people around you that can help you make sense of all this. Because for the past several years, I have been doing a bunch of stuff that I am not equipped to do, skilled to do, but I'm just doing it because this is what you have to do as an entrepreneur. And really, man, just invite people in. And you did, Jessica. You brought in Catherine. And so 21 years later, still thriving, still an amazing organization. Catherine, could you give us the overview of this amazing foundation? And go back 14 years. What did you come into? And how has it developed since then? Um, So Good Plus Foundation is dedicated to upending multi-generational poverty. And we do that kind of on two tracks. First is really addressing the systemic challenges that are keeping families in poverty in the first place. So that's kind of the long-term track. And then short-term, meeting the the basic needs of parents, caregivers, et cetera. Um, So what does that look like? So with parents, you know, we're working to provide about $10 million worth of goods. So think about strollers, the diapers you mentioned, car seats, et cetera, to families each year. And we do that on a monthly basis. So we're providing um, to about 50,000 families, moms, dads, children, grandparents, because we believe that you can't really help the life of a child unless you're really working with their parents. Um, And we do that through community-based organizations. So parents receiving or caregivers receiving our goods have to be enrolled in a program that's going to help, you know, the self-sustainability of the family over the long term. So, for example, um, uh, Eisner Health in Los Angeles. Eisner Health has a phenomenal program that works with low-income families from the 20th week of pregnancy, Mm. working on co-parenting support, maternal health. They're concerned about maternal health. Um, And when we started working with them, dads were sitting in the waiting room but not coming in. And so we talked to them about how how do you approach a holistic Um, Or how do you deal with a holistic approach to kind of maternal health and help to kind of counsel them on that front? 
But they were also struggling with getting those moms back in the door once they had their babies, making sure that they were coming back for well visits. And we said, okay, let's create this tiered donation system where if they come back for the first well visit, they get a a case of diapers, they come back for the second, they get a stroller, a high chair, et cetera. And so through that, we were able to increase their enrollment in um, or increase their participation in well baby visits from 30% to 80%. So we use those donations to not only give parents the tools they need to keep their children safe and protected, but to make sure that parents are coming back for the services they need. So that's the kind of immediate relief piece, as well as those services for those, you know, families are, are holistic. It's everything from um, ESL classes, co-parenting support, mental health counseling, counseling for jobs and employment. So working with dads to, you know, get better employment, get better housing. Um, you know, it really runs the gamut. Every one of our community-based organizations has these multiple interventions because we know that there are multiple challenges for families living in poverty, and we want to make sure that they're coming back, and those donations help to kind of fill that gap. And then the longer-term piece is working within systems that we know have been, you know, really um, led to inequity with family poverty. So, for example, we work with LADCFS, which is the largest child welfare um, system in the country, working to make sure that we're keeping kids out of the foster care system, to looking at child support, working with the Aspen Institute on looking at ways that child support can be reformed to make sure that it's not driving a wedge between parents and that the support is actually going to the children. So that's kind of the long-term, short-term approach. And not all of that was done at once, right? This is 21 years in the making to get to the point where you have an infrastructure with the ability to do all of these things, this holistic care. How did it start though, Jessica? Like what were you doing at the beginning? I'm sure it was bare minimum and just Here's, here's all I can do. This is all I can do, right? So right. how did it start? Because I love the progression there. I love that now it's this very holistic thing, right? It is touching people from all different sides, helping them holistically. That's the that's the best kind of care instead of saying even the, hey, kind of giving them incentives to come back for more visits, right, Catherine? Like that's important to keep, keep them coming back, yeah. keep them seeking help and and, and finding those, those partnerships there. But again, at the beginning, you're just doing everything, anything you can. So how how did it start? Well, at the very beginning, I had a newborn baby at home and we were tripping over ourselves in our apartment in New York City with, uh, um, what's it called? I'm so old now. <laughs> <laughs> um, a car seat that was go. too small. Yeah. <laughs> yep. um, you know, people had sent us gifts that uh, were not the right size. And there was just, there was just too much excess. And um, I felt like things were too chaotic mm. at home to to have any stuff lying around. So I thought, wh- where can I bring this stuff um, so somebody else could use it? Um, we've already outgrown this car seat and we've already outgrown all these clothes. Um, where can I bring this? And I started looking around and I also, it was the middle of winter and my daughter was three months old and I was just thinking, is there a service that might be able to come to our house and pick it up? What, like, does somebody, surely there has to be a solution for all this stuff. And I looked around and I couldn't find it. 
And so I started asking my friends who had kids, and I said, what did you do with all your stuff? And they all said, oh, it's just sitting in storage. Oh, it's sitting in our closet. And so I said, why don't we get it all together and give it somewhere? I'll figure out where to give it. Um, but let's just all get our stuff together. So like a bunch of friends and I just realized we could we could help a few families here. And then I just started thinking, what if we did a one-time drive? Mm. And we did that. We rented out the Chelsea Market. Actually, we didn't rent it out. They donated they it. it to us. Amazing. Yeah. They donated, Chelsea Market donated a huge warehouse space for us. And I went and I did a little publicity on a couple of local television shows. And this stuff came in droves. It was just an onslaught of stuff for a weekend. Um, October 28th, yeah. 2001. And um, we just couldn't get over how much stuff we got. And so it took us a few months to give it away to different organizations that I found through the Robin Hood Foundation. Um, and then people just kept dropping stuff in our lobby because, you know, a few months later after it was over, um, and we rented a space because we realized, oh, this has legs. We could keep going here. And this was with, um, my dear friend, Aaron Berger, who um, really started it with me. And um, she and I just kept plugging away. And it was just us for a couple of years. And then um, I just think we kept focusing on mothers and babies, mothers and babies, because um, that's where I was. Yeah. And as a young mom, and I had another kid eventually, and then another one. And I just, I loved the model that we were giving stuff away and I knew it was helping people. And I kept always thinking about those moms that I worked with at the probation and parole office when I was in college. But I also at the same time knew that we weren't getting to the root of the problem. And I just, it just, I, I, I was frustrated by it and I just felt like we weren't doing enough. Mm. And, um, so, let's see, where are we in, in our time span now? If, you know, where, when, you, and actually, you asked that question, Nick, where, what did you come to when you started? Like, where were we? I can't even remember. You've been so, there for 14 years. I can't <laughs> no. remember 14 years. So, it was an interesting point in time for the organization because she had built this brilliant model. And people are giving their stuff. And, right. and corporations yep. very quickly stepped up and said, we have excess inventory. Yes. Johnson & Johnson, the children's place, we want we want to get it out there. So they had built a very innovative model. But there were people approaching you saying, do you want to scale this up nationally? What does scale look like? And I think they were very smart in saying, let's go deep before we go wide. Let's mm. think about how do we really make sure those donations are having an impact so we started asking the question. When I started September 2008, the, the market was crashing. Eerily yeah, it wasn't familiar. an amazing year. No. And said, okay. And I said to you, we have to come up with the worst place, you know, worst case scenario budget. Let's really do a deep dive, figure out where the organization can make the most impact. We took a look at the organizations that we were serving and then taking a look at the data and I'm a data nerd, but data can tell a story. And Absolutely. There, was, there were a couple of interesting points, but one, 64% of the families served were headed by single moms. Mm. So we started saying, that's interesting. Yeah. What's, I'm a mom, Jessica's a mom. I worked in women's services. 
of course, it's very compelling and we understand why there are so many services for moms, but is there anything happening with the dads? And that was kind of the initial start to the conversation, which started to shift things around 20, That makes 2010. sense. 2010 was our, our first partnership yeah. with a, a fatherhood program, a small, tiny fatherhood program in the Bronx. And we just loved what we saw and we loved how seen fathers felt. And, um, you know, what our experience was with fathers was that, as Catherine alluded to earlier, they were sitting in the lobbies or sitting in the waiting rooms and not really being included in the conversations um, with healthcare providers or social workers around the needs of the children and their families. And that would certainly make a father not feel like a primary parent or certainly excluded in some ways. And I thought that was very interesting and and something I kept in the back of my mind thinking like there's something here. There's something really important here that we can do. But at the same time, you know, in the in the uh, backdrop of families and family stabilization services is this idea that where are the fathers? And, um, you know, there are a lot of different things to say on this topic, but I will keep it very high level in that, you know, there have been policies in this country that have um, ensured that fathers are incarcerated for long periods of time for minimal offenses. And if you really look at where the fathers are, the fathers are not you know, away by choice. They've made mistakes perhaps, or they've uh, lived a life of like the mothers that I experienced when I was at probation and parole, stealing or doing things that weren't legal to take care of their families. But I can tell you that the fathers that I've experienced in our programs don't not like their children and don't want to be absent fathers, but they, from the minute they're born, are dealing with a host of problems that most people we know, um, or certainly many people, uh, could not even fathom and could not even imagine putting together a life that is functioning. Um, and yet they do. And we don't support them and we don't give them the kinds of services that mothers get in this uh, country. And as they should, they're the most vulnerable mothers and children, of course. But you know, we've got some fathers that are too, and they don't make the choice to be absent in many cases. And the fathers in our programs are actually dying to be there. Yeah. But they just need a hand. You're bringing up something super interesting, and we don't have to go deeper than this, but I do want to say a couple things. That is, there are clearly some absentee fathers and mothers. There are yes, clearly absolutely. some people that don't want to be there for whatever yeah. reason probably tied to hurt and trauma in their background Absolutely. as well. But you're bringing up a great point, which is or a reminder, because so many people know this, but you really need to be, we need to be reminded of it, is that most of them do want to be there. Yes. Yes. And because of where they live, the color of their skin, their socioeconomic background, the, the fact that all three of those things that I just mentioned are usually neighborhoods and places where that, that are over-policed, they are going to get caught, jailed, imprisoned for things that if you go to, hmm. you know, look at, the, just go to, let's go to Chicago, let's go downtown, and then the suburbs, right? The same shit yeah. is happening in both of those. Everything from drug, whatever it is, pick your pick your vice, pick your proclivity, 
pick your crime, they're happening. But where are they getting policed and or over policed and imprisoned from? It's it's very clear. And so I'm glad you brought that up because the, yeah, the 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 fatherlessness conversation can go off the rails so quickly. Mm-hmm. Yes. Look at all of these fathers and look at the skin color that is usually associated with no, that's all nonsense. It's all bullshit. Yeah. Usually there is some exterior force that is contributing to the fact that these fathers can't be around, even though they would give anything to be around. Yeah. That's been our experience. Our friend Joe Jones at Center for Urban Families in Baltimore has a great quote. These aren't deadbeat dads. They're dead broke. That's it. That's the story. Yeah. That is yeah. the story. Yeah. And so that's not our job as an organization to judge or shame any father. We like, you know, we we feel that it's important for us to just be there to provide support and guidance and set them up for success because by doing that, by setting fathers up for success, you set families up for success. You you provide help even to this single mother as this father learns how to co-parent. And most times this father has never had a role model himself. And so he's doing this, you know, he's just trying to figure it out while coming out of prison with a $30,000 debt um, over his head and no driver's license or plumber's license or anything left of the, you know, life that he had before he went into prison. So, you know, we feel it's our job to really, um, look at those factors and not why he left. Again, this is a very holistic organization, organization, which I love. I always love to meet people, partner with people, tell that story because so many people, it's easier to not be holistic, right? It'd be so much easier for you just to focus on mothers or children or whatever. (laughs) But it's the the the, the and, and and not to say every family is a mother and a father, right? We that's that's not the world we live in. But in 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 most cases, you've got this this sort of dynamic, and holistically taking care of that without judgment, without prejudice, saying, "Do you need help? If so, we are here for you." Talk to me about some numbers here. Like, what what does this look like practically? Um, how many people? How many families? How many this, that, and the other have you been able to accomplish and do both recently yeah. and kind of how has it grown over time? So in ter- basic number, about 50,000 families per month. But then incredible. if you, you know, over the 21 years, I mean- Millions. Millions. So incredible in, in that regard. And then there's the other piece of it is training social workers to be father inclusive. to. Yes make sure that they're checking their bias at the door when they're dealing with a family to understand disproportionality. And so we're also reaching families through those social workers. And that came about because when we started doing more work in fatherhood and we were trying to, we were trying to bring on more programs, but they didn't exist. And so we'd go to social workers at our existing community-based organizations and say, what are you doing for the dads? And I had this lightning bolt moment when I was talking to this one woman who was working in family preservation. So her goal was to keep kids out of foster care. This is out in Queens. And she broke up a little and she said they had since started doing work with dads, but she said, I was trained in my school of social work to not bother to ask about the dad Mm. because it's going to be a waste of time. Mm. And she said, because of that, My colleagues and I have let kids go into foster care because when the mom's incapacitated, we didn't bother to take that step. Mm. 
And it is hard work. It's it's messy. It's very complicated. Establishing paternity is an issue in some of these cases. But so working with the largest child welfare um, agencies in the country, as well as other welfare agencies across the country, we're working to make sure that the social workers have those tools to find the dads, to have conversations with the dads, to make sure that the dad can take care of that child and set them up for success rather than putting a kid in foster care. We, we created a mandate a few years ago with all of our partners. We have about 150, where are we right now? Yeah. 150 partners across the country. And all of them had to commit to working with fathers. And by doing the work that we're doing with our training academy for social workers and healthcare providers and frontline workers, what that does is ensure that all the fathers that come out of fatherhood programs, when they're, you know, graduating and excited to get there, you know, get out there in the world and get back to their families and be really great at fathering and parenting. And then they go and they come upon a social worker who assumes, well, he's a black father. I, I assume he's just not going to come back. Or I assume that, you know, always assuming the yeah, worst, yeah, bringing yeah. their own bias, maybe from their own childhood experiences. You know, what's the point of doing our fatherhood programs if the social workers and the systems in which this father interacts with aren't up to date with where that father is in his own life and his training and his hard work around co-parenting skills and parenting skills himself. And he's gone through so many, you know, you know, he's just gone, gone through a lot. And it's our, we felt like it was our job to make sure that the systems that he then approaches are at his level. Am I saying that? Yeah. We usually talk about meeting them where they are. Yeah. Yeah. Meeting them where they are. It's so important in, for anyone that wants to give a damn, especially in a city like New York, that is so diverse in every way, culturally, socioeconomically, I was thinking the other day, I passed um, walking my kids home from school. I walked by a young mother, looked tired. She just looked tired. <laughs> and she had two kids with her. And one of the kids was telling her as we walked by that she got a, like a 25 on a math test. And the mom just like shrugged and said, okay, you know, like didn't, I mean, that would, if my kids are thankfully, they're smart. Some of that's me. Some of that's not me. They, they get bothered when it's below a 90, like when they get 93, like, mm. oh, I got two wrong. I'm like, come on, you're fine at a 93. But, and, and I saw that and I, all I wanted to do was cry. The like, exhaustion. Yeah. there's yeah. so much going, that little interaction that yeah. I just saw is so much. Yeah. There is I don't know the father. So much that, on her shoulders. So much on her and, shoulders that her yeah. daughter says, first of all, your kid's getting a 20. Like, where's yeah. that coming yeah. from? You're not yeah. able to help for whatever reasons. The whole thing just reminded me of the importance of my work and what I do, storytelling, mm-hmm. trying to get people interested in this. And then your work. Yeah. And, and that goes back to the two-gen approach that we talk about. Yes. You can't help a child unless you're working with the parents. Yes. And that that takes every shape and form. So one example was with that original fatherhood group, they were, we gave them board books and they were taught how to read to their children because no one had read to them. And so it was so interesting to come back 
the next lesson and the the kind of leader asked them to report back on what that exercise looked like. And this one father said, I was so frustrated. My kid kept interrupting me every every page. And the, the leader of the programs had to say, okay, that's part of the process. I should have, before we gave you these books, talked about what that interaction looks like. But sometimes it's it's literally teaching play. And we're giving them the tools to be able to interact with their children in a way that perhaps no one interacted with them. Many of our fathers have a hard time being vulnerable. Yeah. And our fatherhood programs are really the first time where they can sit in a room with people who look just like them, who are experiencing life just like them, and they feel like part of something. They feel um, trust is possible because there are other people who are experiencing the hardships of being a father who was perhaps incarcerated or is just really struggling and isn't with his kids at the moment or have had his kids taken away from him. Uh, for reasons, you know, we've come across all kinds of reasons and some of it has to do with not having enough money for diapers. The, um, you know, what we see a lot is neglect, the label neglect, um, given to parents that are just, uh, poor, poor. they're just poor and they cannot afford diapers. And if they have strikes against them, they'll get their kids taken away from them for not having diapers. And that, we feel, is just unconscionable. It's inhumane. Yeah. yeah. And then you have this label of neglect stamped for, you know, God knows Having how long. Having to have someone watch you visit your child. And you can't get out of that system once you're yeah. in it. And that's really what we try to do is get people out of that system, especially if they have been labeled ne- neglectful, because so many times it's not true. They're devoted parents, but they're poor. And in this country, you will get your kids taken away from you if you're poor. Yes. In certain circumstances, yes. Yeah. yeah. The highest rates of um, kids going into foster care are because of neglect, not abuse, neglect. And neglect could mean you don't have a crib to put your baby in. Neglect means that minimum wage has not increased in decades. Mm-hmm. And so this parent has to work three jobs. Mm-hmm. To make ends meet, they can never buy a house, so they're renting. Yep. Instability, all sorts of things. They have to work three jobs, so they can't be as home as much. That's neglect. When really, what that's an amazing sick? parent. Yeah. yeah. That's an amazing parent who will do anything for yes. that kid. But we keep people poor because that's easier for a, a certain you know number of people to be poor. We need to keep them that way. Um, and yeah, that's wild. Yeah, and then we we always use this. Um, example of diapers. And then you you take a parent like that who is working through three jobs to just keep their head above water. And then the kid, because they don't have diapers or the mom or the dad has to reuse diapers, which happens all the time, mm-hmm. um, the kid gets a terrible diaper rash and eventually has to go see the pediatrician. And then that parent has to take a day off from work. Oh, well, what if you get fired because you've had to take a day off from work. And then it just like spins this family out of control. Just one little thing like that where the parent loses a job and then it's just, you know, things get worse very quickly. So you, Good Plus Foundation functions in a couple of geographical areas. Is that, I assume that is to go deep rather than wide because you could clearly with your influence and the partners you all have, you could go nationwide, you could go mm-hmm. global, right? Good plus foundation could be everywhere. But then you'd be doing a little bit everywhere instead of a lot of it in a couple places. So I assume that's the reason behind the 
places you've chosen. Obviously, you live in one of those places, but to go deeper and get as much done in one place. And I think we're, Jessica and I are agreed in this. We want to do everything well, right? Yeah. We, we want to make sure that we're not just kind of doing things willy-nilly. And so we know we can go deep in New York and Los Angeles because one, goods can be distributed easily through those two urban areas. And we've got production in China shipping over through the port of Los Angeles. So there are all sorts of kind of logistics reasons why those donations on the ground make sense. We do have a couple of partners in other um, high child poverty cities, but they're much more, it's kind of more, um, more concentrated in New York and LA. When we talked about scale in the past, that's when we kept talking about these systems and saying, we can keep giving out goods, mm. but if these systems aren't working for these families, that's, you know, shame on us. And we know we've done some of this work in these systems, and we really have to expand our reach there. And that was these social workers saying, I was trained not to bother to ask about the dad. I want to engage that. I don't know what language to use because I've been taught how to, to talk to moms and children. When the dad's not living in the home, there's a there's a difficult dynamic between those parents. I don't know how to deal with that. There are multiple challenges. And so we created this training academy with Dr. Alan mm. Michael Graves on our team, who had been on the ground and doing work and had seen this. And then, you know, we knew he was a phenomenal teacher. Said this was our opportunity to take our knowledge about father engagement to Colorado to South Carolina. So we've been doing this work in other states on that level. And then there's the policy piece. So around child support, we did a, a convening with the Aspen Institute in 2016 to talk about the father factor. We brought together, you know, practitioners on the ground. We brought academics. We brought um, policymakers together to say, how can we move this movement, this father engagement movement forward? Because our systems are currently designed in a way that are keeping dads on the side, and it's putting extra burden on the moms. So how can we think about systems in a different way? And when we went through all of the multiple challenges, and there are many, we came on child support because it's the one system that touches more kids in this country than any other. Mm. And everyone across the aisles agrees that child support has not been working. So it was also an opportunity to bring folks of different backgrounds together to say, here's where we can make a difference. And so that, again, thinking about, you know, going broad versus going deep, it was a way to reach legislators across the country, but in a very specific, targeted, strategic way. On that note, and I can't ask what I'm about to ask without it sounding a little political, uh, giving too much away about myself. So we can cut this out if we need to. But I'm interested to hear, based on what you just said, so you're you all are in business because this city has failed its citizens, right? You wouldn't have, it, it, your job would look a lot different if there were better policies in place, better laws in place, not funding the police so much and funding other programs that actually fix stuff. So, so you're, you're fighting against the powers that be in a sense, sometimes, how do you all think, like, is there, is there engaging with, with our local politicians and say, let's come to the table, let's talk about how we can yes. work together? How does that happen for you? We do that a lot. Um, you know, LADCFS is a great example. They're great partners. Great. They said, we know something's not working. Mm. We know we don't want kids to be sent into the foster care system. Come partner with us to talk about what that looks like. 
to working with, you know, ACS in New York. So we've had many of those conversations. I think, so some of it is political and, and the living wage piece that you mentioned before yes, is, yes, is a key issue. Yes, 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 so yes. That's a massive failure. And, and we have been doing micro grants to kind of supplement um, incomes, but we know that that's a massive Not sustainable, issue. yeah. No, yeah, yeah. it's not sustainable. But we have, you know, the interesting thing is if you look at the history of this work, even benefits programs that were well-intentioned, so programs that really focused on mother and child for good reason, but haven't evolved since they were developed, have actually caused different challenges. So unintended consequences of just focusing our systems on moms and children have had some really difficult after side effects. Sure. Um, so we've been working with them to say, okay, how can how can we think about these systems in a different way? How can we design systems to assume that the father wants to be engaged and to support co-parenting? Love that. No matter what the, the relationship is between the parents, bring them together and saying, for the benefit of your child, let's talk about co-parenting. So we have a great friend who's the um, commissioner of fatherhood in Ohio. Mm. Ohio's got a great model. She is a phenomenal woman who's doing great work. And so bringing those models and examples to other communities to say, here's how this could be done and done well in your city, in your state, you know, across the country. As we begin to wrap up. I don't up, know if I asked your question. Answered no, your you question. did. You Sorry. did. I mean, obviously, like, we could we could spend a yeah. whole hour just on that piece. Yeah. Um, do you have any- Yeah, I wanted to just add, you know, you asked a question earlier about why um, we have kept it, you know, to New York and LA and a few other cities sure. and not gone global. What we're so focused on are the needs of our families. Mm. And that takes a lot of work to really address them mm. and to um, create systems and solutions for them. And, you know, if we had just kept going with moms and babies, that would have been very, very easy. Not very easy. None of it is easy. Easier than what you're doing. Easier than what we're doing. And especially for our donors. Our donors, you know, when we started talking about fathers, definitely were a little like, oh, I was so happy giving my stroller and diapers to moms. And what are we talking about here now? We're talking about fathers and we're now dealing with father absence. I'm not sure how I feel about that. And we kind of, let's say, confused our donors sort of halfway halfway through um, our lifespan here and started talking about fathers. And so it really proved to me what we are about, which is really just sticking to the needs of our families and, and not looking up from that. And that felt for me like, um, that it took a lot of energy to stay focused and not look around and be like, oh, you're right. We should have fun parties all the time and, um, you know, keep getting stuff instead of really focusing in on this, you know. Impact and the need. The need and, and, and also the father factor, which is, it's a hard thing and it's hard to, it's complicated and it's not easy to understand. And that felt like the road for me. That felt like a real need that wasn't being addressed. And, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, definitely, like I said, would have been easier to just keep going the way we were. But I didn't feel good about 
that as being a solution for parents and as being like a real um, change-making organization that I wanted to be part of. Congrats again on 21 years. 21 years down, 100 more to go. Well, <laughs> hopefully this thing outlives hopefully. you. Right, like well, that's or hopefully that, we eradicate or yes. yeah. one, of, yes. one of the other. Yes, yes. yes. we yeah. are no longer needed. Yes. Our services are no yeah. longer needed. A thousand percent. So, in light of that, twenty-one years down, many more to go, um, and with the eradication of of unnecessary poverty in view, right? Yeah. Hopefully, we can legislate and change those things in our country at some point. What are you? I'd love for both of you to answer as we wrap up. Catherine, first, what are you thinking about? What you fourteen years? You twenty-one years? Like. What are you excited about? Like, what's coming that you're excited about? What, um, yeah, as you just think about, okay, sure. we're also wrapping up a year. We're going into 2023. Um, what are you excited about? I think, you know, we try to look at the silver lining after COVID because we were, our organization, as you can imagine, was, you know, very, very busy trying to meet the needs of families. And so, and our team is phenomenal and our board is phenomenal and everyone was very dedicated, but we had to be nimble and on day one, be ready to support the needs of families. So we work with largely working poor families, 90% of whom lost their jobs during COVID. We're back to about 50%. But during that time, when we were concerned about getting them the diapers, the strollers, et cetera, that they needed, they were also dealing with loss of income. And so we had been thinking about microgrants back in the days at the Rockefeller Foundation. I worked on a conditional cash transfer program, and I'd always been interested in this idea of how can you get money out to people who really need it? And 15 years ago, it was a very unpopular idea. You know, people on the left said you can't you can't just give out money to people with conditions and people on the right were saying, how can you pay poor people to do things they should be doing? I mean, just very bizarre ideas around it. The time has come where people have a better understanding. I think because of COVID, they understand that certain communities were disproportionately impacted, families of color who are largely the families we serve. They understood the need in a way perhaps they hadn't before. And we launched a microgrants program. We thought maybe it would just be this one-time thing to get cash out the door to parents who are really, really struggling and on the edge. We've now continued that program. So three years later, we've donated um, over $800,000 in cash grants to families. And we did an impact study, and we really took a look at where they were spending this money because we're mindful of making sure that we're having impact. So 50% of the families spent that money on Rent, utilities, groceries, medicine, or medical costs. So very, very pressing needs. That program will continue indefinitely until perhaps, hopefully, there's a a difference in the living wage. So that's something that certainly gets me excited. You're talking about universal, a a version of universal basic income, which I've been a fan of for a long time. I see no downside. The money comes into families. They, more times than not, almost 100% of the time, spend it on the things that they really need. Yes, yes, you have your outlier. They spend it on whatever, PlayStation, whatever number yeah. we're up to now. But generally, they spend it on rent, utilities, groceries, mm-hmm. diapers. And COVID really showed us yeah. how necessary a universal basic income is. Yes. And I hope we get there someday. I hope 
it seems becoming more popular, but there's still a lot of opposition, mostly from the right, but also from the left. And there's, there's still- some groups on the right that are interested in it because mm-hmm. the efficiency of getting cash out the door to people. Definitely. Did that happen as a result of COVID, the, the kind of groups on the right, or was that even before? Right before. Yeah. So there were a couple of groups that were already interested Amazing. because it's it's much more efficient than sending people to five different benefits programs. So, and and they, the data is coming back now. It's now been studied for about 20 years and, and you can't, you can't, those numbers don't lie. They tell a very interesting story. So that's something that's of great interest. Amazing. And then I think the other piece of it is too, as I mentioned, you know, we had support across the aisles for our work with father engagement. Everyone realizes the data shows us that children do much better in school when their dads are involved. There are lower rates of incarceration, better, better maternal health, maternal health when a dad's involved. So it's one piece of information after the the other. Just no one knew how to do this work. And so I get very excited every time we have a conversation with people. They're like, oh my God, this is fascinating. It makes perfect sense. Why do we have WIC, but we don't have programs for dads? There's (laughs) one federal program that funds fatherhood work and they fund about 20 programs and they're great and I love them. It's not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough. And that's why our donors love us is because we, we who are students ourselves of all of this work, and we learn from the needs of our families every day, and we learn through our partners every day what they're seeing, our donors love learning about this work because it's not, it's, it's unique. It's very specialized work. And, you know, we're, we seem to be the only ones really doing it in a focused way and have for uh, have been for a while and were relied upon by this movement i think to to really um keep going and as hard as it is uh, as hard as it is to look at and execute um we have to keep going on it and it's really um you know i think great to be part of something that you know, I guess if if we had seen if we've seen everything that we've seen in this work and we weren't doing it, it would be a you know a terrible thing because we can't turn back now that we yeah. have um, uncovered this thing and we really feel like what we see in our fathers' faces when they graduate from a program and when they're in the lives of their children more because of their work on themselves. I mean, you can't. You can't replace putting families back together with anything. And so our, our donors love that um, because we educate them. We're really transparent about, yeah, no, we're not just doing moms and babies anymore. We're, we're really taking care of the whole family and grandparents. And, 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 you know, I think when, Catherine, you said, like, people's jaws drop when they hear about this work, it's because we're not out there screaming about it. I rarely do things like this because, you know, I'm just a big believer in keeping your head down. But I— think it's great to celebrate our 21 years yeah, together. Yes. And yeah, there's really for us, um, and you asked earlier, like what excites you about the future? Like I could have never envisioned being in this chair talking about this work 21 years ago. And it would be a real disservice, I think, to the organization and to the families that we get to work with every day to plot and plan where we're going to be because it's really based on their needs and Evolving needs. Evolving needs. They're evolving needs, and we will evolve with them. Where can people go if they want to learn more, give, partner, learn more about the programs? 
Yeah, our website, goodplusfoundation.org, has a lot of information about everything from our microgrants program to our training program to how to volunteer, how to donate, how to support. Um, so that's certainly a great resource for folks. I'm impressed. Thank I'm you. grateful. Um, this was a joy to do. Thank you for letting me be part of the 21-year celebration. And yeah, I really am excited to follow along see what's going on because I'm just a big believer, not only in what you do, but just I'm a big big believer in holistic approaches to solving problems. And this is clearly holistic approach. So thank you both for what you do on a daily basis. Thank you for joining me. I hope that some of the Let's Give a Damn community will join what you all are doing and um, look forward to connecting more on these amazing things that you all are doing. Thank you, Nick. Thank you so much. Friends, thank you so much for showing up and for spending some time with Jessica, Catherine, and me this week. To find links for everything mentioned in today's conversation and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. Please share this episode with a friend. Please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And please show up next week. We have so many incredible conversations coming your way. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins-Harn, and the incredible team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.